This month's Scottish Rural Leaders podcast is taken from the welcome event for this year's intake. It's Ryan MacDonald talking about his leadership and life journey. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Jane Craigie. Thank you very much for the invite to come along and speak to you guys um, at the moment. As Julia had mentioned, that I've had the pleasure of being along for the Windsor Leadership Trust and, and the Emerging Leaders Programme from there. And I remember how much I grew as, as a leader, but also as a person from that. So chuffed to bits to come along and speak to you guys th- this afternoon. And I think looking at the transformational change side of stuff, and I know that the, the personal aspect is something that's really important within your kind of work that you're doing. Hopefully, the next 25 minutes or so will be useful for you to hear a little bit about my transformational journey, not least to, I'm grateful for the fact that I'm getting a break away from the kids, um, as, you, as you heard there, in a, in a meal to myself downstairs without um, fingers grabbing for everything. The first thing I like to do is start with a couple of disclaimers. So because I do work within the armed forces community, I always think it's important to put out nice and early that I didn't serve in the armed forces, just to make sure I don't get any credit that I'm not entitled to. So. I've worked within the armed forces community for almost 10 years, um, but also, as, as Julia said, I, um, I've not been a wheelchair user my whole life, so that's something that is an acquired disability that I'll tell you a little bit more about as we go along. So I'm a Glasgow boy, brought up in the east end of Glasgow, which is as far away from rural living as you can probably um, probably get in Scotland. But some of the most important periods that I've been through in my life have happened while I've lived rurally, so I've got a good insight into rural living and, and everything that that, that involves. Growing up in the east end of Glasgow was pretty difficult at that time. Um, nowadays, it's filled with coffee shops and delicatessens, but then it was high unemployment rates, um, real poverty and a real gang culture, um, which was really, really difficult. But for myself and my young brother, we had a bit of a free run through. We were incredibly sporty. That was something our family were really insistent on. And I guess our sporting ability gave us that free pass. We always played football with the older age groups, so it meant the older kids that maybe historically would have brought trouble in your way were always the ones looking out for us. It allowed us to form an identity that was based around our sporting ability rather than something that majority of the people around our areas was trying to be hard, trying to be tough. We didn't have that problem, which we were really fortunate about. And I guess our role models were our PE teachers. That was the thing. We were looking at people who were good in sports, that, that were successful in, in what they'd done, and actually that invested in us, which wasn't always the case in coming from the area that we came from. And I, as a 12-year-old, made a decision. I wanted to be a PE teacher and started, as well as playing football, started coaching as well and thinking what was going to get me into to being a PE teacher. And the route for that was college, then university, volunteering to coach at the Uncle Ben swim sessions when I could barely swim myself. But pretty much anything I could do to try and get towards that goal of being a PE teacher was something I was very keen on. Fell at the first hurdle when I was um, rejected in my first application into college, um, which was a bit of a a shock. I didn't know exactly why. Went back to school for for the next year again and, um, and volunteered in the PE department. We applied the following year and, and was successful, but got really close to the lecturers that I was working with and, and that were going to be supporting me going forward and found out that the reason for the rejection the year before was because of how I spoke, because of how I dressed and the assumption, and I know that there's a lot of work on assumptions, but the assumption that I was going to be a troublemaker coming into college and forgetting about everything that I'd done and all the extracurricular work that I'd done, it, that never got looked at. It was how I presented as a person. 
And I think that was huge, a big lesson for me, especially when I wanted to be a coach, I wanted to be a PE teacher and thinking about parents putting trust in me. I realised that actually first impressions were hugely important and it helped me to, I guess, like become a better coach and a better, I'm not going to say a better person, but more self-reflective and aware of how people um, perceive me when I was coming along. Now, I'm pretty sure that the, co- that the lecturers who had rejected me the year before were then my kind of sporting heroes and there was a bit of a guilt trip within there because they'd done nothing but look out for me for the rest of the time that I studied with them. Um, I'm still really good friends with them just now. One's the, the Dean of um, Sports and, and Health through um, Glasgow, um, City of Glasgow College. And what they were saying to me was so important coming from the area where I, I lived was that I needed to get away during the summers. I couldn't have a seven or eight week spell out of college and going back to that area where my friends were on street corners or, or were hanging about with the local bookmakers. So they encouraged me to, to go across to America which to me was a real no-brainer, going to America where I'd never been before, getting the chance to coach football, coach tennis, and be paid for that as well, when all of my roles up until then had been voluntary. was incredible, but it was the best decision and the worst decision at the same time. So May that year, I, I jumped on a flight, got across to a little place called Edgewater in Maryland. It was a 219-acre peninsula where I lived, so we had everything from water skiing, kayaking, high ropes course, equestrian centres. And for a, a wee boy from a concrete jungle, this was just unbelievable, like absolutely unbelievable. And I think the big thing for me was that there was no presumptions on my accent. So I, to everyone else, I had just had a British accent. So I, it was a clean slate and never having to worry about what I was wearing or looking over my shoulder for who was coming out of close at the same time as me. Just really felt free and had the chance to, to be myself. And I think one of the big things for me at that time was the camp that I joined was YMCA and 50% of the kids that came along paid an awful lot of money. So they were the wealthiest kids in America, but that allowed the other 50% of the kids to come through the homelessness system. So they were coming from the Anthony Bowen Centre um, where they're either experiencing homelessness on their own or with their family members as well. So on one side, you had kids turning up for a two-week stay with two, three, four suitcases being dropped off by their nanny with big, huge cars. But they're sharing rooms with kids who are coming in a yellow school bus with a brown paper bag with a couple of pairs of shorts, a t-shirt and a shampoo bottle with their name scratched onto it. And seeing how sport, for me, because that was the reason I was there, was a leveller for that. And it it made no difference who came from where. The kids, within two minutes, were best friends with each other. And just thinking the power that sports got, um, for me, it just kind of solidified why I was doing what I was doing and allowed me then to come back home from Glasgow after that with a real new reinvigorated, even though I was, I would have said I was really um, confident and really positive that this was my career choice, now realising actually it's a lot bigger than I had thought. My family tell a story constantly about how when I left Glasgow Airport to go to America, I was wearing a tracksuit, a skip cap, a, a short back and sides, like um, a week in a crew cut, and I came back wearing board shorts, a billabong t-shirt, I had hemp um, necklaces and bracelets that the kids had made me, and my hair like a burst couch. But I think that that, that that was exactly what it done. Like it just allowed me to be myself and and not have to conform to this tiny wee area in Glasgow that I thought was the world. And actually meeting friends from Zambia, from Russia, seeing different coaching styles, different ways of speaking to kids, and supporting people, especially the Russian coaches that were there, and how to speak to people because everything that came out of their mouth, even if it was a, a compliment, sounded like a threat. So <laughs> being part of that, and, and I guess I guess like seeing how. Some of the stuff that I just thought was natural was actually really valuable in the in, in the wider world. And it was probably the stuff that made me more vulnerable in the place where I lived. 
that was really huge. So I'd agreed to go back the following summer, come back and the next um, year at college had flown by before I knew it was back in America. And part of my, my kind of leadership role for the session going back the following year was being part of the induction process part of the recruitment. So we recruited over 100 staff in the summer camp every year from all around the world. And one of the big parts for me that I'd been asked to do was to to communicate about how important this two-week spell for each kid when they come for every two weeks was to them. Because for a lot of these 18, 19-year-old kids coming from all around the world, it was their summer and they were looking for a free flight to America and, and a great experience and a chance to go to DC and do everything around that. But at the same time, we had to communicate that for a lot of the kids we're supporting, this is the best two weeks of their summer, the best two weeks of their childhood, and a lot of times the best two weeks of their lives that they will look back on. And there's a big responsibility that comes along with that. And I think probably because I grew up in, in areas similar to that, it meant that I knew the value for that. And that, again, was really valuable. And, and being able to communicate that nice and early to everybody was, was huge. The first six weeks was fantastic and really living my best life. But then was out jogging the same trails that I jogged every day. Um, I had a couple of tick bites on my back. I was out jogging with it with a girl. And we always done a tick check when we come back from every run. We had no idea why we'd done it. We were told you we were doing a tick check. Everyone in Maryland knows how to get rid of a tick bite safely because it was the Lyme's disease capital of America. Unfortunately, the girl that was with me was from Easter House in Glasgow and had never seen a tick bite and wiped them off my back in the same way you would a midgy at Loch Lomond. So within a couple of days, I was really unwell and had been diagnosed with Lyme's disease. I had really struggled to walk. Got a flight home and, and went to the Southern General in Glasgow and really started what was a really tough three months and thinking about at the time they knew I had Lyme's disease, but they thought it had triggered something else as well. And they weren't entirely sure what that something else was. So spent a difficult three months getting back to what I thought was full fitness. I had a lot of people poking and prodding because now everyone knows what a tick bite is. Everyone's heard of Lyme's disease at that time. It wasn't as prevalent in, in Scotland. So that meant I got a lot of great treatment. Got back to, as I say, almost full fitness, finished off my studies, but was in constant com communication with the director across in America. At, at the time, I was saying they were worried about a lawsuit, but I, but I think they, they would say that they were just looking out for my best interests. And actually got in touch to offer me a full-time post over there. So going from living my best life, then thinking actually the opportunities were gone and whether I would be able to walk again. And then just a few months later, being back again, back playing sports, doing what I needed to do, completing my studies in, in college and, and getting the offer to go back across. A, a big part that's missing from all of this is, is my wife. So my wife and I have been together since we were 13 so all of these kind of ups and lows of me dashing off to America for the summer and coming back, can I walk, can I not walk? Like, but all of the, I guess, the emotional turmoil that goes with that had had a big toll on her. Going to America was never her dream. She was studying to be a social worker. But with this opportunity to go across and, and I guess for me, do exactly what I wanted to do, what I'd been dreaming about for my kids. So thankfully... Um, she supported that. We flew across to America. The new role involved like, included uh, a house and a car. So for her, she was able to learn um, equestrian, like horsemanship. She was doing um, a lot of roles that she would lo love to be able to do. But again, we're supporting homelessness. We're working with young kids and um, really struggling. So it still met with the, the kind of the goals for her. And the next year was incredible. We, we traveled a lot. We met lifelong friends like I'd been doing really really well in, the, in my new role I'd taken on land director so coordinating all of the sporting activities and probably the highlight um, being that um, being invited to the White House to meet with the president which for me was just 
mind blowing for a, a wee boy in the East End of Glasgow. Like I just felt as if I um, just di didn't belong, which I didn't. But um, and it, unfortunately, it wasn't Obama because most people you see that and everyone thinks that's great. It wasn't Obama, and it goes downhill. It goes downhill <laughs> from there. Um, but then since Trump, it's getting a little bit better. So it was, so, um, it was George W. Bush. But again, like experiences that we would never have thought about um, being able to do. But the tough thing was that I, I was noticing that my health was deteriorating a little bit and I was falling at strange times. If there was a change in the environment, if it was too warm, too cold, if there was allowed, if somebody beeped their horn and when I was putting um, petrol in the car, my legs would just collapse and I would fall. But I always put it down to maybe just not being back to my best or maybe doing too much um, at work or, or not doing um, enough stretch and whatever. But I kept coming back every six months and getting tested um, with the NHS just to see if there was anything new. And on this occasion, I'd come back and I, in my mind, I was still walking 10 foot tall. I thought I looked like an athlete. I thought this is who I am. Um, but we got, I got filmed. So I got filmed from the back, from the front, from the side. And we looked back at the footage and I was watching for the first couple of minutes. I just felt really sorry for this person that we were watching. I just assumed it was somebody else. My, my knees were kind of dropping in when I was walking. My feet were clawing to the floor. It looked like the person was in an awful lot of pain. And then I realized they were wearing my shorts. They were wearing my t-shirt and, and saw that actually this is the reason I'd been falling because it, I wasn't the person that I'd been assuming I was for the last year. Like my legs had been deteriorating. The people around me assumed that I knew this, which I, 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 had, I had no idea. And I was crushed because it, I, well, yet again, I felt as if all of my dreams, all of my kind of expectations, the person that I am was going to stop and was going to stop there and then. So the next few weeks, um, I stayed at home for a wee bit longer with, with my parents trying to kind of figure out what I was going to do. Went back to America and tried to make the, the best of it. Stayed for about another year with the, my legs deteriorating, but really realising that the compromise we'd made as a family to, to move across to the States for my dream job, I was no longer doing that dream job. So the, I was more time in the offices, travelling a lot, leaving Denise at home herself. The novelty had worn off of the horse riding and the water skiing because in December it's just not the weather for that at all. Um, so we we decided, and it was a really tough decision, but we decided to come home. And I felt as if I'd failed. Um, coming home, to, to I guess the toughest thing for that was we were coming home with nowhere to go. So when we'd left and went for America, I'm picturing champagne bottles and the family all chuffed to bits and, and they moved. So they did tell me where they'd moved to, but they'd moved house into a smaller house. So, so we had nowhere, um, nowhere to, to call home when we came back. So we spent a bit of time sofa surfing. But the most thing for us was, most important thing really, was making sure we were back with friends and family. We were surrounded by a support network. I was able to look at physio again and start working towards figuring out what the problem was and, and getting back to being my, my best self again. And I think that's where that decision came from. That, that it was only three, four weeks where we were dotting between person to person. We were getting under people's feet. Just never felt where we belonged anywhere. It was quite embarrassing. I'd been used to coming home and really desperate to meet anyone to tell them about what I was getting up to. And now I was hiding. I didn't want to speak to people about what my life was like, what it became. But I was really fortunate to meet the most amazing, but also the nosiest housing officer in the world. I'd been walking through a car park and as I say, I was hiding constantly. But I was doing my physio around the car park because it was where I'd meet the least amount of people. Um, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. I wanted to know everything about my story, where I went to nursery, the whole shebang. <laughs> um, and by the end of it though, that 45 minutes that she just put in above and beyond what is expected of anybody. They had a one bedroom, ground floor, accessible flat that they had never been able to let to anybody. 
for like, the reason they hadn't been able to let it to anyone was really evident because it was a dive. It was terrible. Like, it had to be fumigated three times before they would allow anyone to view it. The previous tenant had burned every um, piece of wood in the property for firewood. There was no doors, no kitchen cupboards, no skirting boards. The garden had barbecues, double um, mattresses, couches, which you couldn't see. This was in the garden. You couldn't see it from looking out with the naked eye. It was horrific. But to us, everyone else was knocking it back for these reasons. To us, it was a fresh start. It was a place of our own. We had a bit of savings that we'd put by because we didn't have to pay for anything in America. So we, we accepted the tenancy. We booked a two-week holiday to go away and try and recharge our batteries to allow us to come back and be ready for the property to come back to. But while we were away, our family have got every trade under the sun, so they had their own wee DIY SOS in Glasgow. Um, and while we were having mud baths and, and living our best life, um, we came back and everything was done. So our own wee kind of fresh start, which was amazing, like, and it was so, so lovely. But what I realised really quickly was that my purpose coming back was to try and rebuild our lives and that all stemmed around the four walls of the house and that was no longer there so our, our family members had taken care of that it was amazing Denise was back working in social work she was living her best life but that just gave me more time to think about what I wasn't able to do so I wasn't able to play sports the only thing I could do was play around the golf and I was dragging myself around the golf course falling left right and centre and the golf course had asked me would I politely would I stick to the driving range rather than the course and I thought this was terrible until they pointed behind me and I could see the track that I'd kind of made all the way with my trolley dragging all the way around so that that had kind of gone as well so in a big part of my identity had kind of shifted so that was probably the only kind of I'm going to say weakness but the only time where I where I did just give up and, I, and if I was more courageous wouldn't have been here just now because I looked for every opportunity to hide, every opportunity to get away from anyone that cared about me. Because if they cared for me, there was an expectation. And if there was an expectation, it was based on who I used to be. And that wasn't who I was anymore. But families being families, they don't take that for an answer. They don't allow you to hide away and keep the curtains closed. So when really quickly, we started looking at if I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do, then I needed to do something that made a difference and something that contributed somewhere. And the first place I looked at was the kids that we'd worked with in America. Supporting people through homelessness, uh, I thought, was huge. People going through care was massive. Um, so I enrolled in college, went back and done social care, worked in a residential children's unit, which was my goal, and absolutely loved it. At the end of the year, was given a, offered a, a full-time post within the, the unit. And again, I was back proud, being who I wanted to be. Um, but Glasgow City Council, um, in their wisdom, had decided that a wheelchair user was a danger in the building um, for as being part of the ratio. So if I was classed as a staff member, then I was a danger to myself, to the other staff members and to the kids that were living in that unit. So what they'd said, which was really helpful at the time, they could give me a volunteer post to help with the mailing or to help with some of the admin side of stuff. But by this time, it was a career that I needed. I needed something more than a, a kind of studentship. So because I'd taken some of the kind of punches and, and a little bit more resilient than I'd been in the, in the past, it was only a couple of days, really, of, of wallowing and self-pity and thinking what the, the year that I'd wasted. I'd finished topping my college course. I'd, um, I'd topping my class. I'd set up class um, groups within the, the course to support people who were on the course with English as a second language. Like I was desperate to do what I was doing. This is the thing that I wanted to do. And then somebody, after losing three applications in a row, apparently, had come back and said, well, actually, over the phone, we just don't think this is right for you. So I then went back to the drawing board and thought, well, I'll just go for anybody that needs somebody that can make a difference. So Scottish Refugee Council, Police Scotland, like anything that I thought would get me up in the morning and be proud.
I guess the, the biggest thing that Denise had, or my wife had explained to me was the person that made the biggest impact to where her life was now was that nosy housing officer that wouldn't take no for an answer. So I started looking into housing and found a, a traineeship, which was criminal at the time because I think it paid you about half the amount of money that you get on benefits. Um, but it was a three-year internship and for me it was an investment in myself and, and it was something that I had qualified for as a disabled person I had qualified for. So um started on the course. It was a three-year kind of labour of love, I thought. Um, thankfully, within the first two months, I was offered a full-time post in the, the housing association that I worked for and loved the fact that they could see by the, the wheelchair. It was in the, in the east end of Glasgow, again, so working with people that I'd grown up with and, and surrounded by issues um, that I was really kind of passionate about. And one of the things that worked really well is that apparently there's this kind of unwritten rule that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, you can't be unkind to a wheelchair user, which came in massively handy in the east end of Glasgow when you're speaking to people about rent arrears or you're telling people that they're not getting a flat or a new build that they've, they've seen. Um, so I was really valuable to the organisation, not not for the reasons I wanted to be, but, but it was the first time that the, cha- the wheelchair had kind of changed and, and became a bit of an asset rather than something I was always trying to hide. And I worked there for three and a half years, got two promotions within that time as well but realised there was a bit of a glass ceiling because it, with the best will in the world, there's a lot of roles that a housing officer that can't get to the front door of the properties, just can't fulfil. A lot of people in the organisation were picking up the slack for that as well. So I figured I wasn't going to be moving any further forward than that and I wanted to to look for something else. So managed to find an organisation that um, supported disabled people in housing, which I just thought was written for me. Um, I offered to volunteer at first and then after I'd got in touch, had went to meet the chief exec for a, for a meal. And that's really where everything changed for me. How That's the thing that put the smile on my face. It's the, it's the fact that I'm proud coming through the front door here rather than hiding and hiding at the back. And it was because she explained to me that having housing knowledge and having the, the expertise and everything I'd got from my studies and my experience was great. But coupling that with experiences of homelessness, experiences being a wheelchair user, a disabled person, looking for that aids and adaptations, the, the, tra- the I guess the shift in your identity, all of the stuff that their clients and their customers come through the door with that nobody else can really know everything that they're going through. So you're saying that that's invaluable and there's a whole world in Scotland, a whole sector where I would be worth my weight in gold. And then I, I, I couldn't believe it because I'd always assumed that I would continue to do what I'm doing, but in spite of my wheelchair, and then here was somebody telling me that actually a wheelchair was something that made me really valuable to her organisation. Um, so she offered for me to go on secondment um, there and then, which I, I jumped to the chance. Spent about a week. It was supposed to be a six-month secondment, two and a half days with the Housing Association, two and a half days with, with them. But really quickly realised that on a daily basis, I was supporting people that were going through the, the darkest days that I had been through and that Irene Brown had helped me with. And thinking actually, like, if this is the stuff that I can be involved in and, and earn a living from it and support my family, then this is where I want to work. So really grateful that I, I got a full-time post with them, worked with them for about four years. Um, again, a couple of promotions within there. It was Moira that put me forward for the, the Windsor Leadership Trust to go and kind of grow as a, as a leader. And I think that, again, the, the impact, which I'm, I'm sure you guys are going to get the exact same thing for, with coming along here, was seeing the bigger picture and seeing that, there was a lot of experts within the disability world, but the experiences could be shared along bigger organisations as well, rather than a, a small group of people that are working. And if clients are lucky enough to find us, then we can support them. 
I was really fortunate to, to have quite a few offers to go and work elsewhere. And, and I've, so through that time, as Julia had said, I've, I've worked in national housing and care providers where we've been looking at older people living independently and everything from using robotics and through to um, handheld systems and being able to use voice activation for lifting your lines up and down, like the, a whole shebang with loads of, kind of high tech right through to um, working for armed forces charities, supporting people on the streets in Glasgow to um, into the, the right properties for them and, and I guess supporting them at their the darkest days as well. And I think from a leadership point of view, the, the, the thing that I guess the, the thing that was really I was really fortunate about is that each of those organisations I was able to, to go and work with was because of the leader and, and all of them had something in common was that they cared. Um, and the thing is, I don't think for a minute that you can't be a successful leader without caring. Being a leader who doesn't care, you can win the battles, but very, very rarely win the wars. And the, the people that that I have had the pleasure for working with have all cared about the people they've supported. They've cared about the organisations. But the biggest thing for me was that they cared about me, that they cared about my family. They've cared about the, the person I was as, as an individual. And that's what then allowed me to go and be the best version of me every time I went into work. It allowed me to value the person that I was and make sure that every single person coming through that door for support got the same extra oomph that Irene Brown had given me and my family and not walked past me or, or took my um, ignorance as, as bliss um, the first time that I met her. And I think that's something that I've really keep, tried my best to, to keep in, in everything in everything that I've done. Um, as you heard from, from Julia there as well, it, the life for me is far better than I expected it to be. I'm, I'm working in a sector that I'm really proud of and I'm, I'm really passionate about. I change lead within Homeless Network Scotland as well, which is a volunteer role, working with people with um, lived experience for homelessness to try and support them to drive forward homelessness in Scotland. My kids, um, like three incredible kids who are just as sporty as me and, and far better at every sport than I am as well. Um, but I get the chance to live out my dream of being a coach by coaching their football teams as well. So um, when I pick the kids up from school, like all their friends know me as coach. I coach the school football team, the local football team. I have my sons at the school sport for badminton. So I'm, I'm at badminton tournaments all around the country every, every other week. Just a, a real dream that would never have been possible um, had it not been for... The, the, the leaders that wanted to, I guess, like my, my skills and my expertise in terms of housing, but actually helping me to realise and focus on the things that I can do rather than hanging up on the things that I can't do. Um, and I, I guess if there's a message from me to, to you guys would be the exact same thing in, in your roles. Like just to, if, if there's a disabled person that comes past, if it's a single parent, whatever that is, like where society always looks and thinks about it, focuses on the things that the person can't do. There's so much value and so much benefit on, on working with the people and, and focusing on the things that they can do, both for them as an individual and for the organisations that, you, that you're working with as well. So thank you so, so much for your time. I know every minute's a prisoner in courses like this, so I'm really grateful for the chance to come and, and have a chat with you guys. And as I say, like, best of luck for the course. I hope you guys get exactly out of it what we all got out of it at the, at the start as well. And, and thanks very much, Julia. This month's Scottish Rural Leaders podcast is taken from the welcome event for this year's intake. It's Ryan MacDonald talking about his leadership and life journey.